Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. Our editor, Rusty Reno, has a little volume out with Wise Blood books entitled Duty, the Soul of Beauty. Henry James on the Beautiful Life, our topic for today. Welcome, Rusty. Thank you for joining us. Great to be with you, Mark. Well, first question is a little bit autobiographical. I know you've been thinking about Henry James for a long time. You've written a few things in the magazine for us. Uh, what drew you in to Henry James? Maybe when and why? When I was a college student, I tried to read The Golden Bowl. I think I had been to a lecture and some you know, visiting scholar was singing the praises of Henry James, one of the great uh, stylists, great uh, modernist, pioneering the modernist style. And, I thought, well, gosh, I should read Henry James. So I tried to read The Golden Bowl. I got, I mean, I, within a half hour, I threw it against the wall and said, this is crazy. It doesn't make any sense. But I came back to it when I was in my 40s. I came back to James, and I just God, was just swept away by this elusive, ethereal style that created penumbras and emanations and, uh, and and I just got onto a kick and I read, I can't say I read all of his novels because he was very productive, but I probably read a dozen of them yeah. in my 40s. So that would have been in the 19, in the aughts. In, at, at the end, in your, in your essay here in the book, you actually come up with a summation of his elliptical, involuted <laughs> style that, that actually gets to something about the modern age, but I don't want to say that. Uh, other than note, for now, a whole lot of people had the same reaction you did, including his older brother, William. Yeah. Said, oh, come on, and William, of course, is such a beautiful prose stylist. Oh, I it agree. It is direct and clear, and, and, and for, it's nicely metaphorical. Other times, it's very nicely literal. <laughs> so uh, they're, they're, they're quite a contrast just on, on those grounds. But, okay. No, it's uh, a great, one of the things... He, uh, Henry James and William James ex extended, uh, exchanged letters every week. I mean, one would write to the one, and, would, and then the next week the other would write to the other. So they wrote, each one wrote every other week to the other. And so, and really for almost their entire adult life, and you can read their letters. They come in a single volume collection. And William James was a very astute reader of Henry James's novels. Mm. And I think it was the Ambassadors where he writes, I remember reading this thinking, this, is, this was me. He says, Henry, why can't you just say it 
outright in simple, straightforward, declaratory sentences. Uh, and and I think he's I think William James spoke for you know a great many of the readers of Henry James's novel. He, these novels did not sell well in his lifetime, and it really was only uh, in in the 20th century. I mean, the literary, highbrow literary people at the time of his death recognized that he was a force to be reckoned with. But it, it, it was, I think it was F.R. Levis, probably, The Great Tradition, which yeah. is p published in the 1940s, is that I right? Think so. Late that, 40s. that kind of really, he puts Henry James in the pantheon of yeah. the great uh, English language stylists that were, were must reads. Uh, Trilling. Although I think, he, I think Trilling's favorite novel was The Princess Casamassima. That's not, right. Not usually named as one of the greats. Well, I think it's because Trilling ultimately saw literature as an entree into social criticism. Yeah. And so the late novels, which I argue in this little book, do function as social criticism, do so only obliquely. Mm -hmm. Whereas The Princess Casamassima, it really just zeroes in on the revolutionary mindset yeah. combined with, well, really, limousine liberal mindset. And with James, I don't think he was interested in the Princess Casamassima in the slightest in any particular revolutionary ideas. Yeah. Typical of James, he was interested only in, in the revolutionary mentality. Yeah. And I can't even remember what the cause was in the Princess Casamassima that winds up seducing the young uh, protagonist in, into this revolutionary cell. And I probably don't remember it because I don't think James probably ever describes it. Mm. It's kind of typical of him to create an atmosphere without ever, er, actually giving it any substance. Yeah. <laughs> She's a character from an earlier novel, Robert Hudson. Um, she, yeah. she reappears. But you, you, you say in the, in the book, you say, you mentioned James's quote, studied indifference to overt politics, but that he was keenly aware of the progressivist sentiments just in the air around that time, particularly in the aspect you singled this out as they affirmed the limitless possibilities of human endeavor. What do you, what do you gather James thought of that, even if in a sort of a, a literary sensibility kind of way? Well, I think, you know, James was the product of a family that was kind of the first generation of Americans that were very wealthy and that went to Europe in order to enlarge their cultural horizons. And so his father, his grandfather was a real estate investor, probably got really good deals with Tories that were fleeing after the revolution. Mm -hmm. And by the time of his death was one of the richest men in, uh, in the United States. And his son, Henry James, went to Princeton Seminary but lost his faith. And at that point, his father died and inherited the money from his father. And he moved to New York and he raised his children, um, had a series of children, Henry being his namesake. And the, he moved them to Europe and they would get special tutors. And yeah. he, would, he eventually became a Swedenborgian. Mm -hmm. And so you could say that 
uh, Henry James grew up in a new age spirituality family. You think of a sort of person, yeah, sort of person who they moved to Marin County. <laughs> they do yoga classes. So I think that that childhood was not a happy one, and that Henry James was yeah, very. The kids all had problems. They all had problems. And I, yes, he was suffered from depression and. And uh, Henry James never completed his college studies, I don't think. And, and then the two younger brothers, went, were, they served in the military yeah. in the Civil War. One died, essentially drank himself to death, died of alcoholism. And the other also had a very troubled, a very troubled life. But be that as it may, I think James, then he expatriated himself to Europe and kind of refashioned himself as an English gentleman and so he was very much part of this world of people reinventing themselves. And I think he, he realized that it's obviously something he participated in, so he wasn't so much rejecting it as deeply worried about its seductions. Mm -hmm. And I see The Portrait of a Lady is really about this because Isabel Archer is bequeathed this fantastic fortune which, get, which opens her life to effectively limitless possibilities, yeah. and it's and it's her downfall. <laughs> you know, if she weren't so fabulously wealthy, then who's the wicked? Uh, 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 Gilbert Osmond. Well, Gilbert Osmond is the bad husband, but it's really Goodwood. it's really the uh, the woman, um, uh, Madame Merle, Madame who really winds up. But if she weren't rich, fabulously rich, Madame Merle never would have engineered her downfall. Right, and so. That's it. And then in The Wings of a Dove, it's also the prospect of a great fortune that is the undoing of Dersher, Martin Dersher, Dersher and Kay Croy. It undoes their, their love. And so the money is the image, or it's, and it's still true today. People still think that if I only had Bill Gates's fortune, then I would suffer from no impediments to my happiness. And both of those novels are about how limitless wealth is actually not going to solve the always difficult, delicate human question of happiness. I didn't focus on those novels because I think the question of limitless wealth is, it crops up in American literature all the time. Instead, I was more interested in, in The Ambassadors and The Golden Bowl because in those two novels, we have much more of the kind of postmodern idea that we can transcend the boundaries of mere, you know, of bourgeois morality, have a more open way of living. I always think of, of um, Norman O. Brown, Life Against Death, transcending the iron cage of culture and all that sort of stuff. So that's kind of hovering in the background of these novels. So what you take as your big first centerpiece, two, two novels, the first one, The Ambassadors, what is the situation there? You know, Henry James was always talking about the situation. What, what is your situation? What, what, where are we in that novel? What, what is the setup? The situation is Paris. The circumstance is Strether going to a, a, a kind of bachelor New England man being commissioned by the fabulously wealthy matron to go and talk some sense into her son who has gone to Paris, no doubt she thinks debauching himself uh, in, in the, the uh, loose morals of Parisian culture. 
And so he goes, but he himself becomes kind of romanced by the open, easy, aesthetically refined atmosphere of Paris. And so the situation, uh, it seems to me, is, is this New England, middle-aged New England man who is really entertaining the possibility that he too can remake himself as a, you know, a kind of uh, haute bourgeois European without the hang-ups of a New England Puritan. Right, right. And Chad, the young man, seems to be frequenting the company of a woman who, uh, a, a Parisian woman, what is her situation? She's well, she's, she's married. Strange. She's married, but estranged. Estranged from her husband, married Madame de Viennet, and you know she's a, a very refined woman. You know who knows her way around in the affairs of the world, right. and she certainly knows how to turn a man's head. And a little it, older than Chad. Yeah, maybe more than a little older than Chad, perhaps. Uh, you know, maybe she's in her. Uh, we don't get any specifics from James, but. We're talking a very well-preserved 45-year-old and a very handsome 25-year-old man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's my. That's how I picture it. Yeah, yeah. And and the question is, well, you know, how is what is Strether going to do? Is he going to save Chad? Or but he gets drawn into the 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 beauty of the world. And you actually quote a great scene where Strether, as he's been somewhat absorbed into into this world, questioning his own New England background. And he tells another young man, live all you can. It's a mistake not to. Sounds like a Hallmark card or something. It's a fantastic scene because in this, I mean, it's classic. This, that scene is actually what James, in his preface uh, to the American edition, reprinting of all of his work, he tells the reader that that scene is the kernel of the book. It was told to him by, it's a sort of real life situation that was told to him by a friend, which he of course elaborates on and, and in his own way. But it's a fantastic scene because Strether, he says, you know, live all that you can, it's a foolish not to. He says, I was constrained by my plain New England mold. You know, so he has this sort of vision that the, our consciousness is poured into a mold and formed and it limits the possibilities that are before us that we can actually, how, of how we can live. And he's telling this young guy, don't make the mistake I made, which is to accept the constraints of the mold. And it's funny because Strether sort of recognizes, well, how can you not accept the constraints? I mean, they are who you, you are who you are. So it's this weird double movement of acknowledging your limitations and then saying, but nevertheless, we should pretend that we don't uh, live, live in accord with these limitations. It's a marvelous scene. Strether himself has the chance to marry. There is a woman who wants, wants to be married to him very badly, but he says no. Why, why does he say no? Well, he's got two, right? We've got Chad's mother, who is the heiress, you know, her husband in Woollett, Massachusetts, probably some textile fortune that she's inherited. But as soon as he, he, he fails to do his duty to rein in Chad, He's lost the confidence of, of his mother. Who and, sends another person over. Yeah, who sends his daughter, her daughter over, um, who, who hasn't, couldn't, doesn't give the time of day to Strether. And then Madame Gostry, 
who's another expatriated, I think she's an expatriated American living in Europe long term, who, you know, they, they're, it's funny, James never hints that they have any kind of sexual relation, but they're intimates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she, she she's actually, in a way, passionate about wanting, wanting to marry. I mean, you, you want to say to Strether, look, okay, you're not head over heels in love with her, but look, if you want to break the mold, make a great romance out of this. Yes, yes. Use act with her, make, turn it into something, show some, show some resolve. Here. In that wonderful garden scene when he tells the young man to live, it's, you know, get the most out of life, he says, for me, it's too late. And so it's... Strether. You know, I picture him at 50 or something like that. That's okay. how I picture him. Okay. Gosh. It's a very beautifully wrought character because what James is doing is he's he has a character that admires the others who can do, who can transcend moral limits even though he himself cannot. Yeah. And uh, really that's basically, it's the, it's the coat and tie wearing guy you know, who worked at the Ford Foundation in 1959, who at the end of the workday would take off his suit and run down to Greenwich Village and go to the <laughs> folk city and drink coffee and, and want to be a bohemian, but never really could. Okay. What is the great scene of revelation in The Ambassadors? Well, he's in the countryside. He's losing himself. These are the warm days of summer when Paris shuts down and... He goes on a random walk and he's by the riverside and he sees these two lovers coming down in a, a boat down floating down the river in, in a passionate embrace. And he realizes, oh my gosh, that's Chad and Madame de Viennet. And suddenly he recognizes that, no, this was not a platonic relationship. This was a deeply erotic one. And then his illusions are shattered and he has to face what I call the moral fact, which is that the relationship is adulterous. And a, a word he never writes in in this, and, James. And he really did believe in some kind of higher purity yes. that they had achieved. And no. This was men being men and women being that, women. <laughs> that, that's right. That's right. Okay. You use the phrase heroic transgression. Now, do, do Chad and Madame Vionnet regard themselves in that way? Do they try to give their 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 liaison a, a bit of an edginess? No. Nope. Or no? No, in the novel, it's interesting that, that James doesn't portray them trying to. In fact, it's all kind of covered up, and they have dinner by the riverside. Everybody pretends that, each pretends that the other isn't thinking what they're actually thinking, yeah. and they just want to sort of go on. And But uh, Strether can't go on yeah. and he has to do what he said, thinks is his duty and and I think he I think his duty as he sees it is to uh, to, to tell the tell the young man Chad that he owes to Madame de Viennet you know obligations uh, yeah. as, a, as a man yeah. which I assume is that to secure the divorce and marry her you know another element, even if we wish to regard the sexuality, the eros, in some more more pure term, you also note that there's another angle here that pulls it out of the ideal, and that is when Strether sees a glimpse that 
this relationship is not quite the, the, the voluntary, generous love that actually Madame Vianney feels a tremendous dependence on Chad. It's so fantastic in the final pages of the novel as we get the final turns of the screws, so to speak, and Strether goes to visit Madame de Viennet, and, and she's like in the tumbrel, uh, being led to the guillotine in revolutionary Paris, and he conjures all kinds of images. One of the things about James as a writer is that he, he'll pile metaphor on top of metaphor and uh, in a kind of stream of consciousness that could never possibly work for any other writer, but for somehow, for some reason, for him it works. And so, yes, what, what, do, what do I see there? I see he's trying to have us picture in our mind, 45-year-old woman, very well-preserved, very beautiful, very, but uh, the lines are beginning to appear on her face. And the young man was serving a psychological need for her to reassure herself that she could still turn a man's head. And, uh, and, and if he were to abandon her, then she would have to face the truth, uh, which is really the truth of your own mortality, I think. Right. The aging body, the, lo the loss of the allure, uh, your power is receding. And then he goes to see Chad, and <laughs> Chad turns out to be uh, just as shallow as you could possibly imagine. He's kind of done his fling in Paris, and now he needs to go back to the United States and, and make money and says something to the effect of, well, all these days, it's all in advertising. I, I think he ends up in advertising. Something like that. I'm reminding me of The Graduate, where the guy tells uh, the, the main character's name, the young guy, uh, yeah, it's all, everything's in plastics. <laughs> One word, plastics. That's right. That's right. Okay, the other novel, Matt and I, I, I confess that my, uh, my, my favorite is, I mean, The Wings of the Dove, I think is it. Is a great one, but you, you go to the Golden Bowl. Well, I like the Wings of the Dove, like I said, though, but I felt that that should be paired with the Portrait of a Lady yeah. because it really is about the way in which we can imagine wealth conferring upon us a freedom from all limits. Yeah. And uh, I think the Wings of a Dove is better than a Portrait of a Lady in, in exploring that theme. The Golden Bowl, what's the situation? It's a threesome that's, un that's unbalanced. It's Adam Verver, his daughter Maggie, and her husband, an Italian prince of perfect breeding, right. but from an impoverished uh, Italian family. He needs Adam Verver's wealth. She needs to be a good wife to uh, him, and Adam Verver needs his daughter's company. Yeah. And so you have a very this the 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 thing is out of balance, and so. Maggie then has a, a friend, Charlotte, and uh, Charlotte is a, a well-bred young woman but doesn't have sufficient wealth to live the haute bourgeois life. And Maggie, she doesn't, again, this doesn't ever get thematized in a James' novel, but essentially she says, well, but if my father marries Charlotte, then Charlotte can provide him with companionship and then I can focus my attention on my husband. But this is unrealistic. The threesome becomes a foursome. But what happens is, is that Charlotte, unbeknownst to Maggie, has already had a love affair with the prince. So she provides companionship to the prince, which frees Maggie to spend even more time with her father. We know where this is going. And 
halfway through the novel, Maggie, and again, James doesn't have some moment when she storms into the bedroom and finds her husband, you know, in bed with Charlotte. Instead, it's this, it's this classic Jamesian, somehow she's coming to these realizations and, and, and suddenly it's before her, the fact, and oh no, something is going on, and dot, dot, dot. And so the second half of the novel turns to Maggie's heroic efforts to um, save her marriage and save her father's marriage yeah, yeah. and get things back on track, husbands you, and wives. You, you use the phrase, pleasure without penalties. Well, that's, that's the... Maggie's well, the, fate. Right. Well, uh, what you get, you get, you get is uh, the idea that good people, and this really is basically Strether's sensibility to well-refined people that are kind to each other, who don't suffer from any financial limitations, surely they can live a more expansive life. Yeah. And, and I think that if you look at our sort of upper middle class in America today, you know, you can get divorced and the kids can still go to the country day school and you can pick them up in your Volvo station wagon. Everybody, it'll all work out. We're all civilized. We're all civilized. And, and so our peccadilloes and moral failings, you know, won't really hurt anybody or hurt anything. Uh, and I think it's very, so I find the Golden Bowl to be, even though it's set in this, you know, like super, Adam Verver is kind of the, uh, I don't know, John D. Rockefeller or something, wealth, I mean, fantastic wealth. He's the picture of the American industrialist who's expatriated himself to London to be able to spend his wealth collecting, you know, beautiful objects. And he's bringing it back into a place he's creating called American City. Yes, American City, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so I, I, I find, even though it's set in this, just super high stratum of gazillionaires. Uh, I find the sensibilities of the Golden Bowl ref reflect a kind of upper middle class, university educated, you know, Berkeley, California, Boulder, Colorado, Manhattan, where we are right now. That this sensibility is quite widespread in in the upper echelons of society, and middle to upper echelons of society. Okay, finally. Come back to that stylistic question about James's uh, syntax. Those, <laughs> those, those hyper qualified. I think, I think his brother in that letter you mentioned. I think he uses that he uses interminable suggestion. Oh, indeed. Phrases like this, and the circularity. Can you just tell the story? Uh, but here's how you 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 just wrote by saying that James's involuted style, and those sentences are quote elaborate, psychologically rich versions of blunt contemporary evasions, such as lifestyle choices and value judgments. What are we to learn then when we read this on the stylistic level, uh, the syntactical, the parenthesis, the qualifications? The pronouns that you lose track of what they refer to. <laughs> but you say that there, there is well, I don't know when he's the critique may be the wrong. No, I think it's uh, what James is seeking is psychological realism. Yeah. And somebody told me, well, you don't really know what he's saying. And I've responded to my friend criticizing James that, 
we often don't know what we're thinking. And if you, if you want to be, if you want to have realism about people's interior lives, which are what these novels really seek, then you cannot say things straight out because we can rarely articulate to ourselves who we are, what we believe, where we stand, what we stand for. We could say that we have, we have lots of outward things, but you know, especially when we're faced with challenging moments. And I think I say at the end that who doesn't shudder before the words of the Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, where is the stable place to stand? You know, the Israelites cower at the base of Mount Sinai. No, don't come too close, Lord. Uh, so what James wants to capture is, I think, that in the face of moral realities, the edges of our souls dissolve and, and become blurry. And, and that, that both Maggie and Strether are held up at the end of the novel as achieving a kind of sharpness of, of character, that the edges of their souls become more defined through their loyalty uh, to moral truth. And that the difficulty is aggravated by progressivist conceptions of limitlessness, of do whatever you think, without penalty. Do whatever you think is healthy. That this creates more <laughs> internal evasiveness. Yes, and I think it makes us more incoherent to ourselves. And uh, I... You know, we, we know that young people now in the universities, they take all kinds of uh, medicine now for their psychological ills. And I think, look, I mean, you read those James novels and you think about it, if this notion of do whatever you think is healthy, it really, it gives you no boundaries and no framework, no mold to use that image that he uses in the ambassadors in which to form your soul that it means that young people's souls will be more and more formless. And that formlessness is, is, is a, is a terror, it can become quite debilitating psychologically. Uh, uh, you know, stability is, is, is helpful at times of distress. Yes. So anyway, uh, the book is Duty, the Soul of Beauty, Henry James on the Beautiful Life, uh, a nice little volume from Wise Blood Books. Rusty, thank you for joining us. Great. Well, thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.